What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Ironswick Dog Quip. That's E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K Dog Quip, who are an Australian retailer of dog train equipment. Basically, yeah, you name it, they've equipment. got it. It's mm. Jason Furman, good friend of the show. He runs his business all via Facebook, doesn't he? Yes, all via Facebook. So look him up on Facebook. It's Ironswick, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. He can sell you pretty much any dog train equipment. Jason's dog trainer himself, pretty good one, has some Dobermans and... Everything that he has is stuff that he's used, trialed, used himself. He's the Australian distributor for HF Mills. If you want one of those, talk to him. Herm Springer, he's the importer of most of the prong collars you can get your hands on, fur savers, all that kind of stuff. Mm. He has dog pool harnesses and equipment, balls, tugs, leashes, Bramaware leashes that you can get personalized. Lots of things. All those things, all your dog training needs. That's where I send all my clients for their basics. Talk to Jason at Ironswick Dog Quip. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. The studio. <laughs> I called it the studio. And today it's just us. It's just us. Um, We're here without a guest in the room, which has been an, it's a bit of an anomaly, really. Yeah, it's been a while since we've done one without, a few weeks, well, months. Hey, you know what we should talk about before we kick off onto what we're going to talk about? What? Our origin story, where we met each other. Did we, haven't we not done that? Have we? Because well, somebody said we haven't. I think we've we've done our origins, but did we talk about where you and I met each other? Like, well, I, I wrote on Facebook that you saw me and said, that is what a man looks like, <laughs> and came running over and were like, excuse me, sir. I, I Can I, I touch your beard? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say hello and shake your hand. That's how I remember it anyway, and that's all I'm prepared to talk about. Hmm. I, I remember it differently. How do you remember it? I remember it. Tian saying, there's some guy called Pat Stewart here who wants to say hi to you. And that was at the Hans and Esther seminar, the first one they held here. Oh, yeah. And I said, who? And mm-hmm. she said, Pat, do you know who he is? And I said, no. She said, MSK? I said, nope. Mm. And she said, oh, well, he's here and he wants to say hi. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And you had magnetic balls at the time. Oh, yeah. For people who don't know what they are, I'm talking not Pat's own balls <laughs> that stick to like metal surfaces or anything. Yeah. I'd never seen those training balls before. Yeah, so they, they were pretty were the, new at the time and I'd yeah, got mine in the States. The top matic balls or whatever yeah. they're called. So you were showing me them and I, that's how we actually got to meet each other. So mm. it was at the first Hans and Esther seminar that was here about three years ago now. Mm. Yeah. Three or four years ago. Four yeah. years ago? Three. Three. Three years. How old's Rip? Three. And he was not born. No. So it was, yeah, a bit over three years. A bit over three years. No, I remember I wanted to meet you guys and I wanted to have a look around here because I, I um, remember I had that dog, Ryder, that was really 
a not easy dog to board places. Mm. And I was excited at the, uh, like when I was here, I thought, oh, I kind of want to just check that this could be a, a new place for him to stay because I had to, I used to have to take him back to the, where I got him from, which I did not like to do at all, but I didn't really have too many other options because they could manage him. And then when I realized that you guys could do that, that mm. was, I was like, oh, well, I should meet the guy that runs this place. And then you thought, wow. <laughs> so we're getting back to this the guy whole. has magnetic balls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pretty. And then I saw you working Val. Yeah, um, and I was pretty impressed that you had a little. I've made it no secret. I'm always impressed when I see people that do great things with dogs that aren't high end working dogs. Mm-hmm. And when I saw you, I just thought you were some random Jono. And then you pulled your dog out, and you're one of those people who got this little dog out who was obsessed with dust and fluff on the ground and then all of a sudden she's doing like perfect heels between your legs and like running around a whole group of people and then coming back to a heel position and healing nicely through a crowd of people. I thought, fuck, this dude knows how to train dogs. Yeah, well, the funny thing, the, the, reason, I, the reason I had a working spot at that seminar was I wanted Esther's opinion on whether I on could- On Val's autism. Yeah, on whether I could get rid of her dust and sparkly light obsession mm. without crushing drive. And the consensus was no, you couldn't. And yep. But why would you? Because I can manage her through it. Mm. So yeah. And to be honest, Val drives a lot of people crazy. Yeah. <laughs> she, she isn't for a lot of people because, I mean, she probably is, she's insanely a high drive dog for the things that she wants, for the dust and the- flashing lights and all that kind of stuff. So she never stops. She never stops. Like she's like that all the time in the house running around. You've I can to, tell you, her to stop. You've got to put some videos of Val just doing some va- random Val stuff yeah. up. Well, I've so got so video. I can appreciate. I find it in my phone. I've got a video of Remy asleep and Val just <laughs> running around him in circles. Like yep. literally on, he's asleep in the middle of the lounge room and she's just doing circles around him. You should time lapse that one day. <laughs> like that would be hilarious where everybody is still and Val is just yeah. not not being still. But it, So that's what she chooses to do and I can use it as a reward. So it actually mm. isn't a problem at all because I know how to manage it. It's not a problem in any way. And for us and many of the people that are listening to the podcast, we're the sort of people who will tolerate that in dogs. Like we're not intolerable about that type of dog behavior so for us it's like it's just it's just how my dog is yeah i can live with it it doesn't bother me it's the same with randy i mean randy is it's like morticia's quote what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly yeah so for me randy's behavior is not really a problem it's what i asked for in the breeder it's what i wanted in him i wanted him to be high end he's got hectic drives fantastic for exactly what i want but for other people that's chaos Hmm. That would just drive them mad. You yeah. Know, like a dog like Val in a in an eastern suburbs family, they'd just say, oh, no way. Yeah. I'm not coming well, home to this. She'd, they'd have to crush her a bit. And yeah. she's not suitable for that. In her breeding's defense, like mm. it's because she doesn't have a job that she does all that. She just does it because she's got nothing else to do. She's yeah, got she's a huge a amount. Of, yeah. She's, yeah she's and so when she hunts, hunting, she's she hunts. hunting. Yeah. When Same she's with hunting. Kelpies and blue healers that get put in backyards that shouldn't be there. Yeah. yeah. So when she's hunting, none of that's the present. It's when she's in. Uh, mm. an inner city townhouse that she's like, well, I'll chase dust and sparkly light because it's something to do. But she will do, like, that's her choice. She will do whatever I tell her She'd to do. She'd be a great hunting dog. She is, yeah. Mm. So, I, you know, I take her hunting. I don't want to, it's a very just personal thing and, and I, I can hear someone going, oh, it's because you don't know how. And it's true, I'm not a gun dog guy. Yep. But I've never put the time and effort into teaching her how to do it properly because I'm not involved in that. Mm. So, I take her hunting and she's a killing machine, <laughs> right? <laughs> and- 
we would be disqualified instantly in any sort of gun dog trial. We're not, yeah. I'm not saying that we've done that. And I'm not saying I would know how to do that either, but I have never tried to do it because she loves it. And yeah. I don't care. I don't, I don't need her to retrieve rabbits without chewing them. I just need her to flush them for me when we go shooting them. Yep. So she, she does that. She doesn't need any training how to do that. She came out of the box knowing how to do that. But anyway, yeah, so that's Valerie and that I had her there and that was the consensus. It was, can I stop this without crushing drive? No, because that's where her drive comes from. But is it a problem? No, because she'll do obedience and use that as a reward and mm. so it's no big deal. So, yeah, at that I mean, seminar, look, I've seen that dog in full flag running, like where she's tear-assing down the field and you've given her one command, called her back and she's there between your legs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we put a lot of time and effort into that mm. obedience. You which know, we did the video you've series. got on your video series. Yeah, so we did. Mm. We got her for the video series, which is available at mskennels.com and is just a complete guide how to raise a puppy and we show all the problems mm. that you might encounter and how to just raise a puppy. And it's not for work or for anything in particular. It's just a pet dog sort of thing. If you, we, as we say, if you follow it through, you'll end up with a dog trained exactly the same as she is. And like I say, there's nothing, it's not, she's a, not a, a specific purpose dog. She's just my pet. She lives with me. Yep. She's what she is phenomenal at better than anything. And this was totally by accident. Nothing I did, did this. And it's not why I kept her, but she is the ultimate nanny dog. She's mm. so good at raising puppies. It's unbelievable. And it's good for dogs like Remy and other dogs to have some company at times with yeah. a non-imposing dog where yep. they can grow up and be the dog they need to be with a dog that's not going to try and put them down and slam them. And- no, she's she's the best at bringing, mm. like really making strong dogs. Birdie explained it to me one time, the psychology behind it about like exploration requires uh, like a safe base. So... So my dogs are confident enough to go out and experience the world and become adventurous and outgoing and experience everything, knowing that she is providing a safe environment for them to come back to. And I have footage. I think I've spoken about it here before. I have the footage. I've shown it to heaps of people on my phone of her actually doing an object guard of a puppy where the puppy is potentially at risk from another dog that comes in mm-hmm. and it's a Sharpe. Val can't get a read on the dog, whether what its intentions are like. And this puppy is just doing stupid puppy things rolling around on the floor. And Val actually guards a puppy, ushers this other dog off, mm. and then the puppy doesn't even know that there was potentially a dangerous situation there. Doesn't she try and get toys to suckle on her and stuff like that? Well, she, she did. She had a she had a false pregnancy. Mm. Um, so she wants to be a mummy badly. I feel bad about not letting <laughs> her. But- yeah, she when she had a false pregnancy, she yeah. she had a really long one. When Jane was pregnant, she was pregnant. She was fake pregnant for over three months. Well, Jane's hormones could have brought it on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she wouldn't give up on the idea that she was pregnant until Jane actually had rip. And what we did was, I <laughs> I bought this. It's such a bizarre story. I don't expect anyone to believe this. I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it. But at the gift shop at the hospital. Remember, she stayed here when uh, Rip was born. So mm. I came and picked her up and we talked about this. At the gift shop at the hospital, They the soft toy, the only soft toy they had was this little rhinoceros. So I left this rhinoceros in the crib with Rip for like 24 hours. Then when I came out here, picked her up, I gave her this rhinoceros and she immediately grabbed it in her mouth and ran into the, the box in her car. I think you were there when this happened and was straight in the box with this rhinoceros little toy holding it. We went home and she carried that up into the house and um, my other dog Ryder was with me and they used to be pretty good. They would share toys and stuff like that. And 
he went to get it and she bashed him <laughs> and then she carried it into her crate mm. and was trying to feed it and was like nuzzling it to to feed yep. and i was like this is the this is too weird i took photos of all this it was the weirdest thing ever and she was convinced this little thing was her baby. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this is how the fake have pregnancy Have you still got those ends. photos? Yeah, they're on my website. Yeah, they're, they have to go up. They're on my website. MSK? Yeah, on the it's like a blog. Back when we used to use the blog, uh, I haven't. no one's posted on the blog for forever because Facebook. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so she tried to feed this thing. So she's convinced this is her baby. Then the next day we bring Rip home from hospital and <laughs> she, she gets one look at him. It was like you. Son- she had like the little rhinoceros in her house. She's like, "You fuckers lied to me," <laughs> and d- just destroys it. Yep. Immediately destroyed the rhinoceros. Like this is a toy. You've you've tricked me. And then was trying to feed Rip. Like it was just so. It was beyond weird. She mm. would sit next to Jane, and she was leaking milk. She had full udders. She was she was convinced that he was her baby. You know where the term wet nursing comes from, don't you? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So like a surrogate feeder. Yeah, well, in villages when the mother has a baby, all the aunties and so forth come into, yeah. what do they call it? Breastfeed. Yeah, breastfeed, but they call it, oh, what do they call it? There's actually a name for it when you- Being a wet nurse. <laughs> yes, but when you actually start producing milk, it's called uh, lactating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they all start lactating. Well, no, they don't start lactating. That It's- it's yeah, <laughs> it doesn't work. Like Is it, am I off tangent? Yeah. Go on, explain to yeah, me. They don't start like Teddy. They, if they're if they're still producing milk from a child they've had, they would feed. And so I've I've heard this story differently. I've heard the story that women will have false pregnancies as well, yeah. and they will lactate, and they can help to feed the baby in villages. That's that's what I've been told. I don't know if that's 100% true. If there's anyone out there who wants to, who's medically versed, who would like to challenge that theory or tell me something different, I'm open to it. But that's what I've heard from a medical background. I would be surprised if that's the case. Like the idea of community feeding and all that sort of thing certainly exists and like a tribal sort of thing Mm -hmm. because they would have kids at the same time. They don't just start out of nowhere lactating. It's uh, how, How do females do it? Female dogs. How do why why do they have well because she went through the phantom pregnancy so yeah but Val had a phantom from yeah but if the humans <laughs> that had a phantom pregnancy went through the whole thing well there you go this, this is a good topic this is a good one for anybody who's listening no well it's certainly there's certainly it's not just the the auntie start lactating that's not that that's not a thing it's that they would have had a kid or still be breastfeeding and they do and they feed them yeah that sounds relevant I'm not sure <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. We'll leave it. It's good, good comedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's go on to, because we're recording at a different time, we don't really have a topic other than I put out there, hey, got any questions for us because we don't have a guest to come on. Well, what what happened was I've got NDTF all this week and I'm training them myself. So I'm flat to the boards. Usually on Tuesday mornings, we have someone lined up and because of the time zone with America, we can talk to them at a relevant time that's suitable for them. But unfortunately this week we couldn't. So we only had Thursday, but yeah, Pat said, Hey, let's, we've got plenty of people asking us questions. Let's go through a a listener question list. So when I put it up within two minutes, Georgie Harrington, what are the dimensions of the box? (laughs) Georgie, that's a hug right there for sure. It got 37. That's a hug from me, Pat, and Brent. Yeah. They got- In credit. You're getting it. 
28 laughy faces and nine likes. On okay, 28 hugs. <laughs> 28 hugs, that is. But let For me, every smiley face, that's a hug. Let me reiterate, the size of the box doesn't matter. It, it's, <laughs> it's just a box. It can be anything. My box is the internal dimensions are 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres. It's a square. It doesn't matter, though. And I, then I get the lately I, I get people saying, oh, but it's hard for my dog to get into a box that size. That is the fucking point. <laughs> okay. Oh, it rubs against Or if against you've got a teacup chihuahua and you've got a 30 centimeter box, which is bigger than the size yeah. of the dog, yeah. fully extended on its back legs, you're a peanut. Yeah. So listen to the episode. Understand that it's about there being some difficulty and mm. not being able to see what's going on around them so that they can't be flighty looking around. And just adapt to that. Look at the size of your doggy and the size of the box. And if you have got a teacup chihuahua, yeah. then but make a teacup chihuahua size box. Mine is 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres. And those are the internal dimensions because mm. mine will fit a clack clack in it. And that's the only reason it's that size is so yep. that for other things that I use the box for, it can put a clack clack in there. Yep. Um, if you would like me to make you a full set of the boxes that I, I have, I can do that. They are 300 Australian dollar dues and cannot be posted because it's too heavy and expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're very welcome to come and pick them up. You can flat pack it, can't you? Yeah, but it weighs a ton. It's a for oh, the it's full set a, of the box. Yeah, just the weight. Yeah, for the yeah. full set of the box, it's a it's a full sheet of marine ply for yeah, all the yeah. boxes. No, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, so all right, let's enough. go through our user questions or uh, listener questions, I should say, not user questions, listeners. Laura Taff, not sure if it's been asked before or covered. I'm a bit behind, but I'd love to hear more about you guys, how you guys raise puppies for the first year. What are the main important things you focus on? So you have a whole episode on that. Yeah, I think we did a, uh, we've done a couple of episodes on puppy raising. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that was, yep. that topic has been fully explained. But the cliff notes for me is exposure, environmental exposure, toughening and conditioning, and like ignition. That's it. I don't really particularly care about teaching anything. I will, of course, teach many things along the way, and the dog will learn many things along the way, but I don't have a goal of by this age, Mm. you should do this. And it's just we use the learning as a toughening experience or a dry building experience or not dry building, but ignition building experience. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, if you haven't done something about – your socialization or your generalization in any environment with puppies, then it's a mitigated disaster. You've primarily destroyed your dog. There's a very good book by John Paul Scott called Genetics and the Social Behavior of the Dog. If you haven't read that book before, I'd recommend that you put it on your reading list. It's not a storybook. It's a scientifically backed-based book on how they selectively trained or not trained, but what the the observations of behavior they found in certain dogs at different ages of their life and their exposure or lack of exposure to stimuli being human and environmental stimulus, how that had an effect on them and what it did to their overall behavior, especially if you're raising dogs in a family home. So one of the things that you've got to do down, Pat, is you must get that critical period done. And as Pat said, which you mentioned before, you've got to work on toughness in the dog as well. Yeah. So having a stable and a social dog, a dog that has been habituated as well, which means that it's been introduced to machinery, non-organic or non-species related items, and then developing a 
symbiote relationship between organic and non-organic items. So you develop what we call a generalization approach to things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but go back to those episodes. Hopefully they answer the questions for you. If not, point out what you would like us to clarify specifically and we'll make sure we piece that together in a future episode. Something I'm really opposed to in the raising of puppies is I see a lot of people still online, especially working dog people, say that never let anybody else pat your puppy or pat your dog. I think that's outrageous. Well, if you want a defensive puppy and a dog that's scared, then you've got a social issue. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you can train all that shit later. You don't – like, if you want to put aggression into your dog and make it want to be aggressive to everybody, I mean, if that's what you want to do, do it later. Don't do it with a puppy. When we're talking about cliff notes, I think what should be stipulated better there is don't let other people engage your puppy. Don't yeah. let your don't let people be the source of reinforcement for your puppy. If that's what they're doing, I think that's what they're confusing the whole pat the puppy thing with. Yeah. If your dog is becoming fixated and focused and rewarded by the presence of other dogs and other people and not you, then yes, you've got a problem. Let them see them, let them have exposure to them, let them understand that they're part of normal everyday life and that they can flow and move around them and they can occupy the same space. But you definitely want to have that dog learn that you're the source of entertainment and reinforcement. Yeah, so how I do that and... (laughs) um, Get a wet nurse from a village? (laughs) (laughs) No, so I go out, I take puppies everywhere. When I have puppies, they're basically, they're on a harness and Mm. a flexi lead and they go everywhere I go. They pretty much live in my car. Yeah, and That's the best way to do it. Because it's mostly Mallies that I have, people are always like, oh, what a cute tiny little German Shepherd, can I pat him? And I say, yeah, you sure can. And they, they... they'll be a meter away, whatever. They go to call the puppy over. They bend down. They they like, woo, 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 and the puppy goes running over. I let them basically touch the dog and then I click. Yep. And because of the way that I have charged and loaded the clicker, the dog turns around, comes flying back to me and gets food. Yep. And people look at me like, you fucking asshole. Why did you call your puppy away? And I laugh. it's my dog. I laugh and I think, thank you for your, thank you for your help. <laughs> yep. uh, and anybody that knows my dog and like has seen that program, I've done it with many dogs, but I've seen my dog and seen it all the way through, is he is excited at, the group of people, but doesn't go sulking for pats. Mm. He's like, oh, there's a group of people. He that's a good thing. He comes over and says hi and bye. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And so yeah. he knows that there's value in other people, but the value in other people comes from me. Mm. And so he's totally was close to neutral to people as you can get. And Val's the same. Like there is, she has some people that she likes and will cuddle up to in that. But in general, she doesn't. She doesn't go looking for affection from anybody else. Uh, she She's happy to be around people. She's not mm. worried about people, but she knows that the value in other people comes from something that I will give her. And and I do that with, have done that for a long time and will continue to do that because I've had such success doing it. But that's the beauty of owning a dog that's clear about what its job or its performance is based on. It's like Harley. Harley would occupy the same space as people and he'd be quite happy to turn around and destroy those same mm-hmm. people in a flash and then stop it as fast as you could say it because he knew he had clarity in his work. His default position was you're here, I'm here, live and let live. And that's what I want in all my working dogs. Same thing. So that's it, Laura. Really, it's foundation skills and toughness and like nothing. There's no one behavior. I want to do an episode. I put a post up about the the first thing you teach your puppy. And that really, for me, was a a cue into how we load the clicker and Mm. and why. And the huge number of behaviors that come from that clicker. uh, And just the classical conditioning of when I click, I know you're going to do something. I can count and I can make it that behavior. So we can talk about that another time. Rihanna Nation. She wants to talk about the complexities of a difficult client, how to meet expectations and saying no. Oh, geez, that's a, that's a good one. 
Well, this uh, not a topic could go on for a long time, but she specifically says how to meet expectations and saying no. So we could just focus on those. How to meet things. expectations in saying no? Is that what she's asking? No, and saying no. And saying no. I guess it comes down to making it clear where your stance is, what you provide and what your stance on your business is, mm-hmm. listening to the expectations of the client. If there's something outside the communication between you and the client, then that needs to be clearly discussed before any further progress happens. And I think the biggest problem between a client and a business operator is they have poor communication amongst themselves. Like your policy on whatever you're offering might be poorly explained. Mm -hmm. And if it's not and your policy is clear, then you need to explain that clearly to the client in language that they understand. Because sometimes people interpret things entirely differently than what it's proposed. So what I generally say to people is, what is your expectation? This is our our company stance or our business philosophy. What was your expectation around that? Mm -hmm. If they have something else in mind or they poorly interpret it, I'd point out in a nice way the error in how they've interpreted. But we want to try and get them back to the point where we're both agreeing with each other rather than fighting over semantics. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might think to yourself, is this really worth fighting over? Is this really worth losing a customer or losing a bunch of people? Is this worth getting a bad exposure on social media? Where do you draw the line? And I guess that's a personal thing where you have to decide to yourself is what am I fighting? Am I fighting on principle or am I right in what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with all that. I think from my point of view, and I'm in a different sort of business, for me, how to meet expectations is I'm always very clear with people when I first start training mm-hmm. with them that I am there to train them and they are training the dog. And I will rarely, if it's a an aggression case or there's a, a problem, if I'm there to fix a problem with a dog, I might do the initial part and then hand over to them just to get the ball rolling with the dog and let the dog understand. Like say teaching slip lead pressure or like prong collar pressure, I will show the dog how to relieve pressure and then I'll go to the people. Now you can use the thing I've shown the dog so mm. I can do that quicker and more effectively than them probably. But for people who have come to me for like what I'm sort of calling now like performance coaching of their dog. I'm always really clear. Like I'm here to tell you how to put it into your dog. You're the person that understands me. There's no point in me making your, cause I've had bad experiences where I can get a lot more out of someone's dog than them. And then it's pointless cause they, there's no point in me being able to handle their dog better than them. Mm. It just upsets them later. So yep. I try to minimally engage with people's dogs or handle people's dogs. It's more me trying to explain to them. So I manage expectations by being really clear that you have all of my time yep. and, and I'm explaining it to you, but you have a level of capability that it can can and will increase, but it's you that I'm working on, not the dog. Just as a side note on that, that's one thing as professionals that we can really screw up quite quickly with our clients is that we can go around there and in minutes we can get their dogs under control. Mm. And I like what you just said. It's less about you handling the dog and it's more about teaching them to handle the dog. The less hands-on you have in that situation and the more you say to people, look, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to coach you how to do that. That's actually good ethics in there because you can grab the dog, you can make the dog look wonderful, you can get the dog tuned up almost in five to ten minutes and have them going, wow, and leave them with false expectation. Whereas somebody else might say, well, I can show you what's capable, which isn't such a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. However, 
you're still not teaching them to fish. You're yeah. giving them a fish. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're not giving them the capability to walk away and saying, mate, thank you. I've got this now. I can actually take this to the level I need to. And when I'm stuck on that, I'll call you back and we'll go for round two. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think that's great. I, I really like that. That's yeah. good. At the moment, I'm I'm really into the the why and less the how, as I'm explaining to people. Yeah. Because when you understand the why, then the how takes care of itself. And mm. I, I think we had this conversation the other day. I certainly had this conversation with a client recently who perhaps listens. So, <laughs> hello. Hi. Um, but if someone asks you, you say, okay, do this. And they say, why should I do that? If you don't have the answer to that, then you're in a you're in a difficult situation. Mm. So you really got to understand the why. Why why am I doing that? And just as an example, because it might have actually been the one I was talking about with her that that let the dog go to other people, click and bring them back. I have to understand. Like I can tell you do that, but then when they say why am I doing that, I need to understand the why. If I got to be able to regurgitate that and 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 really know it, not mm. just know how it works. And I think. Certainly, I have been guilty in the past of just pe- teaching people, do this, do this, do this, you'll get the result. But along the way, something may happen and they can't do those things and they have to know the journey, not the destination, so mm. that they can take an alternate route to get to the same destination. All right. I'm going to bring up an example and it's somebody that I've talked about on the show, but I'm very impressed with their work. Okay. Jordan Peterson. Oh. My nice. old mate. Your close personal we're, friend. We're besties now. Close personal friend, Jordan but Peterson. I've listened to quite a few of his podcasts. I've obviously read his book, but I was watching him last night. He was debating a transgender thing. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how he didn't like the fact that he was being forced into- Compelled speech. Compelled speech. And he didn't like it. The way he responded to it was primarily what you were talking about just before. He was very thoughtful in his responses. He took his time. And he answered it. I think he answered it very well. They kept asking him the same questions and they kept coming at him in a roundabout fashion. But he kept saying, I've already made my position clear on that. I've given you the answer. Like you asked me that three different times in three different ways. Mm -hmm. I've made it clear. For anybody who is discussing a topic, I think that's very important. You have to have the ability to say, I'm a paid professional. If you're asking me why, I, I really need to have the answer for you. Yeah. Or at least one thing that we used to say earlier on in old days when we had Australian dog training back in Melbourne in the early days was we're always encouraged to say to people, if somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, just say to them, look, right now, I don't know, but I'll find out for you and I'll get back to you. That's the best I can do with Mm -hmm. with this right now. People actually appreciate that because they don't appreciate it when they just know that you're fumbling through it like my Perception of wet nursing before. <laughs> uh, was that from Boyd? Did he? That was from Boyd. Boyd yeah, started so that. And that's there's actually like, that's part of the army lesson yeah, plan. Yeah, it's the cat. Well, it's, a, it's just general army, the blueprint. There's actually yep. a thing where if you get asked a question you don't know the answer to, and yep. it, like, it's a thing that every army person rattles off. Like, that's a great question. I don't have the answer for you right now. However, if you come up and see me later on, we'll find that out together. That's exactly what we were saying <laughs> yeah, to people. It's literally a yeah. script that every army person gets told because that's yeah. how you avoid getting caught. Like, it's the same as we were talking about before. You can never lie to a group of people because you will come unstuck. There's mm. no point fluffing your way through. Yep. If you don't know and you can't work it out there on the spot and unravel it, well, first of all, you're in the wrong room. But if someone yep. asks a red herring and you can't figure that out, then you've got you to gotta come clean with it. Yeah, it's good morals for life, really. Yeah, but mm. uh, and you just save yourself looking like a fucking idiot. You're better off going, hey, I don't know that. 
but together you come and see me after the lesson and we will go and find out that answer because you've triggered my curiosity. And now you, what you also do is don't make them look like an idiot if it is a stupid question because you go, you've triggered my curiosity. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, yeah. tell the truth or at least don't lie. Yeah, exactly, mm. right? Love you, Jordan. Um, <laughs> Uncle Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Great book, should read it. Really, really should read it. Life-changing. Um, okay, and saying no, I just tell people to get fucked these days. I, I've, I've really... I've, <laughs> I did not expect that. It's just like, where did that come from? <laughs> well, I do because I'm not... Like, I, I I just am not interested in in bringing that level of unnecessary stress into my life. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yes. Just the way that you just... You even... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even stop. I just tell people to get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do. It's um, oh god, that actually really made me laugh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I just uh, no. I'm very good with um, just not invoking any unnecessary stress into my life. And so when people, if I've got to tell someone no, then I just go, hey, that's not that's not how it's going to go. And like, give the reason, uh, but also just get fucked. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not diving into that. So do you need any more than that, Rihanna? <laughs> Glenn, you okay? Not really. <laughs> uh, uh, that okay. caught me off guard. So Abby Phillips says, tips on how to read your dog. Sometimes I see people petting their dog and offering food or a toy and the dog reluctantly takes it. I bet I've done it before too. It's easy to get distracted trying to teach the thing you're trying to teach and not reading the dog properly. So you think you're rewarding him when you're actually not. What are the, some key signs you keep an eye out for to notice when your dog is becoming frustrated, like before it's really obvious? That's a really good question. We were talking about this in NDTF today. We were out on the field. We were doing some training. The guys, it's been a long week. It often is in NDTF. It's it's long weeks, long days. There's a lot of theory that's got to be pushed into them in a short duration of time. And then we're out on the field getting dogs. So big days, lots of travel. It's 10 to 12-hour days for some people with the travel, with all the work they're doing. So in one of the sessions, I was watching people starting to regress. Like they're with the dogs, and I kept saying to them, only reward best behaviours. If you feel that the dog is starting to decline in its behaviour and what it's offering, stop. Don't do any more. Stop right there. Just goof around with the dog. Stop what you're doing. Don't don't give the dog any access to any more reinforcement. If the dog surprises you in behavior and gives you and offers you something that is magnificent, of course, click the, the dog and reward it, but don't do anything else. Don't ask the dog for anything. Actually, I know I've talked about this before. We've, we use a lot of Bart Bellin's phrases on this because we've done training with him and you know him quite well. But I love his analogy of ignition or getting the soup boiling. Like he, when he talks about making soup, you know, he often says, if the water's not boiling, you're not making soup. And it's the same thing when you're training dogs. If you haven't got that dog in, in a stage where the water is boiling, you can stick vegetables in that pot of water. Nothing is happening. They're just floating around in water, suspended in water. That's You come back three days later, same sort of thing. All the vegetables will be there. If the water's boiling in an hour, you've got tasty soup. You've got vegetable soup cooking, and it's the same thing with your dog. If you haven't got it, you're not getting anywhere. You're not progressing. You're not doing anything. You're not doing any justice. In fact, you're doing yourself a great disservice because you're teaching your dog how to be lazy. You are teaching your dog the whole time, like you're teaching 
decline in behavior, not incline in behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I I think to add, I like to pay a lot of attention to my dog in that every dog has a tell for everything. And Mm. I think Sam said this to me the best, and I've, it was in reference to tracking and every dog has a tell usually in their tail of when they're tracking and when they're looking for the track Yeah, and you can tell, and there is no, the tail is up, the tail is down, the tail is way. There is no rule, but there, there's always a different behavior it's in the dog's tail. It's significant to the dog. It's a signature. Yeah. Mm. And so when he's on track and in the teaching phase where you know exactly where the track is, pay especially attention to his tail. Mm. And then when he's off the track and you know he's off the track because you know where the track is, pay attention to his tail and they'll be definitely be doing different things. And now you know. So when you're when you are tracking for real and you don't know where the track is, you shouldn't be looking for the track. The dog knows how to do that. You should be looking at his tail mm. and understanding whether he's on or whether he's looking for it or whether he's faking or whatever. And so there's always a tell. There's always something. And it it's you just have to pay attention. That's it. And But as for overlooking it, I think um, a spotter helps if you have someone you can train with. I think a training partner is very important. It, like you've pulled me up on many things and, and I've done the same to you because you can get caught up in the moment or you might have. That's a, perp- that's a reason of having a community around you that you yeah. can work with or video yourself. Yeah, video yourself. Yeah, you video yourself and critique yourself quite yeah. Um, stringently. The only, like, a spotter is better than video because video, you're re- reviewing the past. Yeah. A spotter can say, hey, hey, stop, you're going too far. Because I know I can be, I, I have a goal for every training session. Mm. And if sometimes you have to adapt that goal on the fly, depending on what happens. Yeah, that's true. And you might not do that as very effectively. And it's good to have someone. So this is the rule at our club. Like, yep. you have to say, before you bring your dog in or as you bring your dog in, you brief everyone. This yep. is what I'm working on everything going according to plan, this is what I want to happen. Mm. And then it never goes exactly like that, but you adapt on the fly and at least everybody knows what's going on and they can say, hey, you've done enough of that, you haven't done enough of this, whatever. It can be, we can adapt. But having a spotter is a good idea. Yeah, that's um, sage advice. Yeah, so having a training partner and a spotter is, is a really good one. Yep. And just pay attention. Every dog's got to tell for everything. All right, M. Smythe says... Tips on business side of running a dog business. Things you wish someone had told you. Well, let me go first on this. Sure. I am terrible at that, so I don't really want to give any advice. I regularly forget to invoice people. I leave equipment with, like I lend stuff to people and never get it back. I am really, really bad at the business side of my business. Mm. Um, So, Glenn? All of that. (laughs) Yeah, all of that definitely. And I think to add to that is make sure that you've got a good accountant slash financial advisor, Mm -hmm. somebody who can actually teach you about what business really is. Don't go into things just half cock thinking. You don't want to sort of think I've got a dream and then just, that's good. I mean, seriously, it's good. I mean, it starts with a dream, but the reality is set things up properly from the get go. And that's probably one thing that I didn't do early in the day was I didn't get good tax advice. I didn't get good accountancy advice. Having a skill set in like being, you can be the best dog trainer in the world, but you can get fucked up hard by the tax department if you don't structure your business properly. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember too, like if you're doing this, you're doing it to eat, like you're doing it to put milk and bread on the table. So the fact is, is that yes, you need that advice, but also you, it's, there's no point in just giving discounts to all your friends all the time. Yeah. And creating friends out of your clients. They have to understand this is your professional career. It's one thing that I did quite a lot too 
is that I started letting my clients become my friends and then mm. all of a sudden you felt bad about charging them and then before you know it, you've got a bunch of friends that you've met but you've got no money coming in anymore. Yeah. That's not a good thing. And I, I mean really when – even if you are somebody's friend, if they're if they've taken their friend hat off and they're there to help you, I think as a friend you should expect to pay them for their time. Yeah. Like if you've got that agreement between them, you should say, okay, I'm happy to pay you. If your trainer slash friend at that point says, no, I'm, I don't want to accept the money and you've offered it anyway, well, that's on them. Mm. That's not on you. I'll give you an example of what happened to me a while ago is that I used to do some bike training down in, in Melbourne and I had a group of people that I was training with and I think it's that at one stage it was something like 40 bucks a head. They'd come down and train, okay, 40 bucks. So it wasn't much money, especially considering I was giving up a, a weekend to do it. So I went down there and there was about 10 people. So it was good payday for the day, 400 bucks back then. That was ages ago. And Should stipulate ages ago when bite work was legal. In when, when it was legal. It was 20 years ago. So it was quite, quite some time ago before the legislation became tricky and difficult and complicated. Mm-hmm. Before the Domestic Feral and Nuisance Animal Act changed and modified to stop people from having fun in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So anyway- we're down there and the group of people, I'd bring a barbecue down, I'd bring some drinks down and uh, and some sausages and I just said, look, if you want something else, bring it with you. After training, we'd have a bit of a powwow and we'd sit down. So we became friendly. Because we became friendly, the group said to me, do you reckon we could start trimming some fat off this cost? You know, like maybe 20 bucks. And I got up. This was the day that I'd actually grown up. Because I got up and I said to the guys, that's it, guys. Training's cancelled. And they said, why? And I said, because I can't afford to do this. Like, this is my job. And I'm down here. I'm not just here to, you know, like I'm not a millionaire. I'm not here to enjoy my time hanging out with a bunch of guys. I said, I actually need to do this because I'm giving up time with you guys where I could make all this money on a couple of private lessons. It's my back, my equipment, my petrol, my time to get down here and my time to get home. You know, like I'm down here for six hours training with you guys. And I said, and the money is justifiable, but if you want to do it for that, it's it's not worth it for me. So you've got to have a look at it. I'm not a, a stingy person. I believe in being benevolent where there's plenty of people that even here we look after a range of welfare groups and stuff like that. Like we offer free training and help mm-hmm. for people in welfare. But at the same time, the business still must succeed. Your yeah. business still must succeed. And you've got to look at it from do I want to succeed in business or do I want to pack all up and, and risk my house, my car, and food on the table for my family? That's the questions you really got to ask yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. It's a hard one. And as I say, it's not one I'm good at. I, I struggle with that exact same thing. I'm getting better now because what used to happen was people who were into the things I really wanted to do, I didn't want to charge them much or at all because I wanted to do that kind of work. Mm. I'm lucky now that most of my work is that sort of thing. And so I, I'm getting better at it. But it is because if you if you're regularly training someone, you're in their life a lot. And when your job is someone else's hobby, it's diffi- It's hard to ch- keep charging them. Mm. Um, and you just have to, yeah, you just have to do it. But I'm, I'm not good at it. So I'm not, I'm not a good one to hand out advice. But that's with, that goes back to probably one of um, Rihanna's original questions is have a, a an agreement and stick to the agreement. If yeah. the agreement needs to change, then talk about modifying it. Yeah. And that group did, they did actually talk about modifying it with me, but, 
I, I just said to them, guys, it's not worth it for me, really, honestly. And I said, if you can get someone to do it that cheap, then good luck going and finding someone who can give you this good a product for that cheap. Mm. And I said, I'm not that cheap person. This is what I'm valued at. If you feel differently about it, then let's just cut ties now. Yeah. All right. Lisa Shiraman says, it would be really cool if you guys could talk about how this would relate to you. She posts a picture of a man with a man bun and beard. So that obviously relates to me. <laughs> hugging a dog and it says 93% of dog owners in the US say their dog has made them a better person in at least one way a study found um, so I agree with that that's how it would relate to me I totally agree that- are you attacking me because I'm follicularly challenged <laughs> no not at all <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. I think that my dog makes me a better person for sure. My dog taught me a lot. I think that mm. I am I'm I'm applying a lot of the knowledge that I learned with the intention of putting it into my dog into raising my son. Yeah. And that 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 makes me really happy that I've preloaded all that info and now I'm using it in a totally different application, but it's all the same shit. It's behavioral science and I'm 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 really happy that I have a lot of that a lot of Have I told you about the swearing thing with Rip? We we're talking about this just the other day with a friend. No, tell so, me. He took up swearing because me and Jane are both potty mouths, as you probably realise if you're listening no, to this. not at all. Uh, After you just tell clients to just randomly get, get fucked. <laughs> um, so Rip started swearing and he would say fuck quite a bit, right? At, yep. at like two and a half. <clears throat> and um, I said to Jane, okay, I know how to fix this. Yep. This is going to be an uncomfortable period. She's like, okay. I said, what we've got to do is we've got to go through the extinction process on this. We can't reward it. We can't punish it. We don't want to do any of that, right? We just want to ignore this behaviour away. So what we did, every time he swore, and he was so good at swearing, it broke my heart. He was, It would always be in perfect context. Yep. Anytime he swore, I would just pretend that I didn't understand what he was saying. I'd say, what did you say? And he'd read, he'd say the exact same thing again. And I'd say, what? I don't, I don't get it. And like he'd say like, just as an example, I want that fucking lolly, right? And I'd be like, <laughs> and, all- and I'd be like, what? And he'd be like, I want that fucking lolly. And I'll be like, what? I, what are you saying? And he goes, that fucking lolly. I want it. And he'd like rejig the sentence and he'd keep trying. And I'll be like, what? I don't, I, what are you saying? I don't understand it. I can't hear you. It doesn't make any sense. And he'd rearrange the sentence as many times as he had to. Eventually that rearrangement, would, he would drop the swear word. And then he'd say like, I want that lolly. And yep. I go, oh, the lolly. And I give it to him. Yep. Now it worked. He totally stopped swearing. He doesn't swear at all. And now he we we introduced that it's not allowed to be said and he gets to pinch me if I swear in front of him and all that. But when you're at the shopping center and your two-year-old is dropping the F-bomb like 30 times in a row, rearranging your sentence and you're going, what? Yeah, got, I can't hear you. You've got docs turning up on your doorstep. Yeah, and people are walking past going, I can hear him. He's saying fuck over and over and you're just letting this happen. Yeah. But- Worked perfectly, yep. like worked a charm, and, and there's it was never not going to work. It, mm. He learned that there's no success in saying that. It didn't. I, I didn't have to rouse on him, and then it's like, oh, it's a taboo and it's a naughty thing. It's just no success. He yep. just, I just don't understand what you're saying. Mm, perfect, uh, and it worked great. Although awesome. we had to go through that, so that's just an example of one a tool a good example. I used. It's very good. I like yeah. it. It's a tool yeah. I used for. There would definitely be something I would do with dogs, like a like you know, like there's a, a chain, like a, a behavior in the chain that I don't want there. Yep. I keep interrupting until they drop that behavior. Yep. All right. Pamela Tomney says counter conditioning and desensitization maybe been covered before. Yes, it has. That's the box. That's how I do it most of the time. Don't probably need to talk about that anymore. Um, Glenn. Anything more on that? I think we could probably do an entire 
We might. What we might do is we, we're probably going to talk about aggression soon. Mm-hmm. Not probably. We are going to talk about an aggression soon because I've been asked about it a fair bit of time. Mm-hmm. I do quite a bit of aggression training for people. I run seminars quite a lot for aggressive dogs because I've been around more aggressive dogs than most people have had hot dinners. Mm-hmm. And that's really a good example of where the principles rely on changing the behaviour of a dog. But I think it needs more time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel comfortable answering it in five minutes Yeah, um, because it's such a okay. It's we'll a do an episode on and that. it's a very deep discussion to have. It's a good one to put in the bank. It is. Uh, okay, Ben Dawson. In the bank. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Somebody said that the other day and I haven't heard that one before. Never heard it before? No. Oh, my goodness. Put it in the wank bank. Uh, ben That's Dawson. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing it and using it as mine. <laughs> <laughs> ben Dawson says, what things to do when introducing a baby into a household with a dog. That's a good one. I think things I did, and I got this advice from other people as well, is any changes that will come about because of the introduction of the baby should happen prior to the baby arriving. And so, you, you just talked about that before with Val and that little rhinoceros. Yeah. So S- Similar things. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I can talk about this really quickly. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Put all your baby gates up. Like the, the issue is most people go from – we're a single couple and we have the dog that has free range of the house and he's our fur baby and yep. this is how we live. Mm. And then suddenly the new baby comes in and I don't have time for the dog anymore. Yep. And the dog obviously then deals with the fallout of that. We could say that that's jealousy, resentment, whatever, but really it's just a change in scenario. Whether, you know, what the exact emotion the dog's feeling, who knows, but it's a change well, what in scenario. It is, in, it, to put it in context, what it is, because I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and having people discuss it with me, mm-hmm. is the dog endures a lot of punishment in the presence of a baby. Yeah. So the baby appears and the dog is consistently punished. It's negative punishment and positive punishment mm-hmm. on multiple occasions, on like in high intensity. Yeah. So the baby comes out, the dog gets kicked, get away, scalded. It's completely turned upside down. It's yeah. a straighty 180 right away. So the dog goes from like a lavish lifestyle to a hellish lifestyle because of the baby. The smell the sight of the baby, anything to do with the baby, like if the baby cries and the dog barks or the dog barks and wakes up the baby, fire and brimstone happen, like the dog's life turns into complete and utter chaos. Yep. So that's why a lot of people create problems for themselves because they don't do a good introduction process with the dog and they don't make the sight of the dog, a sight of the baby, a rewarding experience. Well, even before that. So I think that it's important that the changes that are going to happen in the house happen prior to the baby yeah, coming home, several months. Mm. So you're going to restrict access to the dog. You're going to- yeah. Leading into. Yeah. So mm. like the dog yep. that has free range of the house is now going to have certain rooms he's not allowed into. So, yep. so beautiful. prior to the baby coming home, so it's not the yep. baby caused all this, mm. is you change all that access. You, you pretend that you're living the life with a baby, change the- the dog's routine early yep. so that his new routine is the norm when the baby comes home. Yeah. I, th- I um, always say that with the introduction of a baby to a dog, one hand for the baby, one hand for the dog. Mm-hmm. Like I always have like in a calming, what feels like calming, patting nature to the dog. I'm always got one hand in contact with the dog, one hand in contact with the baby so that if at the, Anything goes wrong. And like I say, like my dog, Valerie, when I brought Rip home, legit thought she was he was her baby. Mm. Even at that level, and she's the softest dog, she could never like she would never hurt him. Even at that level, I don't trust the dog to to be around the the, the baby 
unattended. So for those first few interactions, baby's in one hand, the dog's being pat with the other hand. And I mean pat right up around the head where the collar is. So that yep. if anything goes wrong, I can snatch that collar and, and diffuse that situation or at least keep everybody safe. And then just the positive experiences around the baby as much mm, as possible. Absolutely. And again, like that's probably a whole episode and all that, but that that's the main thing is I think my advice to people all the time is the changes that the baby is going to occur to your house should happen prior to the baby coming home. Yeah, I think that's great advice. All right. Sharon Wee, how do we deal emotionally with knowing that you have the skills and abilities to help dogs, but either have clients who refuse to try, don't do the work or don't want to listen? Yeah, well, that sort of goes back to this is what I mean when I just tell people to get fucked. Uh, you have yeah. to emotionally, you have to separate you from that. You divorce yourself from them because there's, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Yeah. Classic old saying, which applies to customers. You can pour your heart and soul into it, which a lot of people do. And a lot of people take uh, huge offense to this and it really psychologically dents people. Like they see it and they just say, what the hell is wrong? You know, and they blame themselves for it. And they take, they really take a hit to the pride and the ego over it. But what I've got to say to you is after many, many years of doing it is I've just said, I've given you everything you need and I've given you access to other people. And I've even said to people, look, maybe I'm not the right person for you. Maybe you need to hear it from somebody else, a referral. It's, It's completely up to them. If a doctor tells you you've got cancer and you do nothing about it, you know, like you just choose to live the lifestyle that you're living and you end up getting sicker and whatever happens, happens, that's not on the doctor. Yeah. The doctor gave you a list of alternatives that you can work with and said, you know, here's a list of things that you can try to fix the situation for yourself. And it's this, I mean, effectively having a problem dog in the house is a cancer that started. Mm-hmm. Like, And especially for the dog, it's a death sentence starting to gear up. Well, to quote your close personal friend, Jordan Peterson, again, mm. uh, there's a chapter in his book that he talks about treat yourself the way uh, as as though, or is it someone that is in your care? Treat yourself as though you're, there's someone in your care. But the idea is you can't help other people if you're not in good shape yourself. Mm. So you got to look after yourself emotionally and you can't get caught up in other people's stuff. Compare yourself to who you are yesterday, not who someone else is today. So you, you just can't get caught up in that. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Yeah, exactly, right? So you got to look after yourself and that'll allow you to di- to work with a hundred other clients that will do what you say and will do will put in the work. Yeah, that's if right. If you get too caught up in one, that'll burn you out and that's mm. the end and you don't get to help, help all those others. Yeah. All right, moving on because we are running out of time and our club is about to turn up. Nipopo, Avery Aquila, Nipopo for dummies. <laughs> well, Nipopo is negative, positive, positive system. And in the time we have, that's about all I can check. She also asks, uh, free sh- shaping, free versus assisted or shaping versus luring. All of them have their place and you should be using all of them. Yep. She also says building drive. I would say that's a whole episode in that, but the truth in my opinion on this is you can't build drive. You can make a dog express it more, but he has the amount that he has. You can bring out the expression, but you can't put any more you can't put in what nature didn't. If you haven't listened to Bart's episode, I would recommend yeah, go tracking back through that. that and have a listen to Bart talking about his development with Michael, how him and Michael have refined old Napopo into new Napopo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm yeah, I'm almost certain that that he discusses at length a bit of detail about that. So it's it's definitely worth having a listen to. It's still our most popular episode on our downloads list. Mm-hmm. Mm. Kevin Nugent, dealing with dog leash activity when you don't have access to a sound dog to help and or when on leash 
walk, you hardly see another dog? That's a good question. And I think that'll be the last one. Maybe we'll find some time to do another episode before we go to the States because there's still a lot of questions that are worth answering here. Mm. Um, yeah, we've got time. Next Tuesday we can do another no, one. No, I leave on Tuesday. I'll do you? But I'll bring my dogs out here on Monday. I don't know what you're doing on Monday. Monday will be around. Yeah, mm. all right. Well, there you go, listeners. We've just talked about that. Yeah, we've just had a live <laughs> debate on air on when we can do our next podcast, yeah. just just for you live. Well, because there's a lot of questions here that I would like to answer. <laughs> yep. Um, and with Kevin, I think uh, the box is a good one for that. So you need to work indirectly. So the building like leash reactivity is usually a, a fear-based thing. The dog is re- reactive on leash because- Or predatory-based it, it can be. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But usually, in my experience with people's pet dogs, is that- uh, Leash reactivity is because the inability dog, to flee. Yes, exactly. So mm. the dog has fight or flight. He yeah. knows like I can't fly, I can't flight because you're here holding me. You're forcing me into this situation. So yeah. um, I can only fight. As the best way to treat that is to make a stronger dog that is not scared of things. You can't if you have limited access to dogs. It would be a long time. Well, first of all, let me go back another step. Listen to uh, Jay Jack's stuff on the layered stress model, and because there could be lots of things at hand that uh, the dog is not the issue. That's the trigger, not necessarily yep. the issue. Very, yeah, very good episode. So listen to that. But then also, in general, just make a tougher dog. If you get really, really limited access to to safe dogs that you can do this stuff around, then obedience. Mm. That's the key. They, it, it's If you can never get the dog over its problem, if you can lock it in obedience and, and obedience so tight that it doesn't acknowledge the problem, then the problem is solved. Yep. And I think the gold standard on that is like two minutes. If you can get your dog to, to sit and hold eye contact with you for two minutes, you can get through some pretty hectic situations, right? And so if you can teach that using an, any number of distractions that you have, mm. then you see a dog at distance, you lock eye contact with the dog, or you engage the dog in some sort of very strict obedience and you get through that situation. That Now, I'm not saying that's the best technique, but if you don't have access to the trigger then that's probably the best management plan. My other advice on top of that is go and work with somebody who is adept at working on those sort of problems. Yeah. There are some very good people. But that would feed into, like he's saying, when you don't have access to any of that. Make access to it. You have to. <laughs> yeah. You know, like there are situations you have to set up. Yeah. And, I mean, those sort of things to fix them properly, you need a safe environment to work with. Like just randomly strolling the streets looking for a dog, that could end in disaster yeah. and litigation. Yeah. So my my best advice on those type of things is go find a, like a safe scenario where you can set it up and you can work on it. Um, it might mean that you have need to bring a trainer to your place with their dog that you can set up scenarios, like you can pre-plan it and set it up. I've certainly done lots of this before where I've, I've taken, you know, a dog like Val. Mm-hmm. Where a, a, like a passive dog, my old dog um, Biff, when he was still alive, Biff was he was a like a great big hulking Rottweiler. Biff was the least problematic dog with other dogs. He could not give a shit what was happening. I'd just bring him into an area. Dogs had seen they lose their mind, and Biff would just mosey along. Yeah. Even if they came flying over and threatening him, he'd just stand there and look at him. Yeah. But we'd set it up properly and we pre-plan the environment and, and I'd say, this is what I'm going to do. Now, this is what you're going to do. And if this happens, you're going to do this. If this happens, you're going to do this. And if this happens, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. So we would talk about the scenario first, not just go in and wing it and say, well, let's hope for the best. We'd come up with a three-stage 
approach to the problem and then start to work through solutions on top of it. Yeah. If it was too much intensity, we'd reduce the intensity straight away. We'd have hand signals, the whole lot. It needs to be done. I think uh, if you're going to take on cases like like that, you, I personally feel you do need a dog that you can do those kind of things with. If you don't have – like, and I've been in that position where um, Val, when she had her tail removed and like I couldn't take couldn't her to work. It. Well, I couldn't take her to work. Mm. I had calls for people with that kind of issue and I said, hey, like I can't see you now because I don't have my dog that can help me with You're this situation. Dog. Like yep. give it a month, she'll mm. be recovered and, and she can come back to work, but I can't help you at the moment. And – what I have, and the reason I have such good obedience on her, like functional obedience, and this is the way I do these kind of things, is if I'm working with a dog like that and I'm handling the dog, and people like I've got clients that have seen me do this, people at seminars see me do this. I use my marker boards. I have a marker board outside of my car, and she's in my car in a, in her crate, the crate open, and I can be working the other dog, working proximity and triggers and that kind of thing, and I can call her out of the car. Send it to the marker board. She'll hold it down on the board, so I can I can get her moving around. I can get her to stay still, and God bless her. That little dog will let a dog go. She will hold it down while another dog is going ballistic, trying to kill her. Mm. So long as I'm handling the dog, she yeah. won't pull that. Like if someone else has got the dog on the lead, she doesn't put up with that bullshit. She's out of there. But it's as long as I'm handling the dog, she trusts me that this is like I understand what's going on here, and I always feel so bad having done it to her. But she accepts it and I always give her something like special treat afterwards. But that's why I've maintained such a high level of obedience on that dog. And distance control mm. is because when you are working an aggressive dog like that, that is all based on dogs and you are working proximity triggers, you need a dog that you know for sure you can control. And especially if you're handling the dog, you need to be able to handle the, the problem dog on yep. leash and the other dog remotely and there's precious dogs, precious few dogs that are capable of doing that, let alone trained to the standard to do it. So be careful getting involved in that if you don't have that kind of dog. Refer on to someone else. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is reinforce the behavior or make it stronger yeah. um, by having that wrong dog. And it's not fair to create that situation, mm. to put dogs in a dangerous position like that. Well. I mean, that could be, it could be fatal yeah. uh, and it could be a case of litigation. So you need to be smart about those yeah. sort of situations. Work with work with professionals who understand what they're doing. Yeah. So it goes against what I said earlier where I don't like to handle people's dogs, but I'm not willing to put my dog in danger in that situation. If I'm working a dangerous dog around my dog, I'm holding the dog. We use mm -hmm. all my equipment yep. so I know none of it's going to fail and it like I control it all so that it, it can't go wrong. Yep. The only the only thing that could go wrong is that Val comes in too close, and I control that as well with training. Mm. Um, but there's always risk. Yep. All right. I reckon we're out of time, uh, but there's a heap more questions that we should go. Hey, through I again. really want to say to everybody, I'm I'm so impressed and thankful. I mean, there's a lot of gratitude from Pat and I about people who are getting back to these questions. Like when we look at the forums, people are starting to interact. They're asking questions. There, it means that people are listening to the show. We've got a lot of supporters, a lot of love out there. And it's very much appreciated from us, as it always is. For a show that we didn't know where this was going, yeah. we've now got fans all over the world, 55 countries now, nearly 50,000 downloads from iTunes and so forth on our report. So getting a great response in America. Canada's starting to come up there and Britain's starting to come up there and so forth. But Australia is heads and tails in the lead. Then we've got America chasing right behind. 
Really appreciate it, guys. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, like, rate, share, subscribe through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to help support the show, jump on our Facebook, send us a message and buy a T-shirt from us. We're selling the T-shirts for 50 bucks and caps for $30, 10 bucks for postage. And um, obviously, that's an expensive shirt, but that's to help support the show. We're, We're looking to sort of recover some of our running costs from that. And if you get a bad client, just tell them to get fucked. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) And if you want to get in contact with us, just shoot us a message. That's it. We should have that on our next shirt, actually. Just tell them to get fucked. Yeah, just get fucked, Pat Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Music.